the very first time I met Sam Rivers was with this band, and uh, if I can just tell you this short little <laughs> thing, because it's both like a, building up to it's this like all. a surreal, uh, magical moment in my life, but it also I think it illustrates something about the uh, the seat of the pants nature of touring. I mean, these, we're treating these people as somewhat legends, and they are, and they made this incredible body of work, but they were. You know, we heard earlier about Sam Rivers having to hawk his furniture to buy <laughs> yes, groceries right. between grant checks to keep Studio Rivby going with five kids and all that. Um, you know, the, it, so let me just try to paint a picture for the, of this. I was in a jazz group in 1978 in Phoenix, Arizona. We're on the road. We're in this little cowboy town of Prescott, Arizona, 100 miles north of Phoenix in the mountains, playing at schools and prisons and uh, nursing homes <laughs> and stuff. On trust fund gigs, they call them. <laughs> the prison route. <laughs> so we're sitting in this hotel room. It's it's April or something. Nice weather. We have the door open. We're blasting a McCoy Tyner cassette with George uh, uh, Tenor play. Coleman. Uh, George, no, uh, uh, George Adams playing oh, oh. Screaming on Tenor. <laughs> and uh, and we're we're literally sitting there a hundred miles north of Phoenix, saying like, "What a drag it is that we have this gig, and it happens to be the one night when Sam Rivers is playing at our university a hundred miles south of us." Okay, <laughs> so we're looking into the we're in a, a strip motel, you know, in Arizona. A van, white van, pulls up. Four people get out: <laughs> Sam Rivers, Dave Holland, Thurman Barker, and Joe Daly. There are a whole strip of motels. There's 20 motels on this road. Okay, <laughs> we're the only. I'm I'm sitting there with Lewis Nash on dr as the drummer in this group and a conga player and a and a flute player. And Sam, we're on the second floor and we go. We he sees us first of all. We look like musicians. He comes up <laughs> the stairs of the C-shaped you know little motel complex. He sticks his head in the room. He says, "What's happening?" <laughs> and, and we said you're sam rivers like that's you just drove a hundred miles past your gig because we knew that he had been previous night at university of arizona in tucson and he was supposed to be at arizona state in Tempe. And you need to look at a map to see this but we're a hundred miles past the gig it's four in the afternoon and so we're, and he's like, is that George Adams? And we're like, yes. And we're listening to McCoy Tyre with George Adams. And we're like, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be like 100 miles away. And he's totally calm. He's like, oh, okay. Can you tell me how to get there? I mean, he literally drove halfway across the state past the gig. So, but, I mean, I'm not, I'm not making fun of, I mean, you know, there's a level of precision, you know, this amazing musicianship, but these guys were having to like navigate the country in a van by themselves day after day after day and they drove all across the country. So I 20 years later I had dinner with Dave Holland and I said, "Do you re do you remember this?" I told him the story. He laughed. He said, "No, I don't remember it at all. You want to know why? Because we were lost all the time." <laughs> he said, he said we were touring Germany once and it was either Germany or France. And I'm, we're on a train, and I said to Sam, where are we supposed to get off of this train? And Sam said, I have no idea. <laughs> and so they got off at each stop and ran around 
looking while for posters they, uh, on the platform <laughs> until they saw the poster for their gig and they made it to the gig. You're kidding. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they knew they were they were put on this train but they had forgotten to say oh, like man. get off in Nancy or, you know. I love that. <laughs> People in my band used to get mad at me that I didn't have directions when we were driving around. I feel like I'm part of a great tradition. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds like a rock band or something, and it, and it was. It's four guys <laughs> That's right. in a van talking and like, oh, did we miss the exit you know, three hours ago? D- yeah. Dave told me that when I interviewed him on the radio in 78 or 79 or when I was talking with him, he looked kind of tired. And I said, well, where were you guys? You know, He said, well, three nights ago or whatever, five nights ago, we were playing in um, – Vancouver. <laughs> I go, how'd you get here? He said, well, we, we drove in a van. But Sam was doing the driving. and <laughs> Like, Sam was so wound up. Oh, he just, you know, I guess he drove all the way from coast to coast with Dave Same and, lo- and Barry, like, sleeping in the back of the van. He's 50 at this point. I mean, he's not, a tr- he's not right. 25. He's 50. And he was, yeah. he was driving in his 70s, yeah. driving all over Florida to, from gig to gig. Orlando to Gainesville all the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about his level of energy. He's, he's oh, an yeah. unbelievable yeah. person. <laughs> Real I mean, inspiration. Really something to be around. Really. Well, let's get into his or- orchestral work because we haven't, we haven't gone into this yet. And, and um, I'm going to take a step back a few years to 1974 where we hear Sam's writing for orchestra for the first time on record. And this is uh, Crystal's Impulse 1974, 14 musicians, three trumpets, two trombones. We got tubist Joe Daly again here, five reeds, bass, two drummers. It's a very dense sound, um, needless to say. There's a lot of contrapuntal uh, work going on here, which is something we hear again in, in, in the Rivby Orchestra. Uh, lots of composed background for soloists. And I love the, there's a lot of angular, uh, very sharp, rhythmic, uh, jagged um Themes, which is much of very much a Sam thing, um, and actually that's the way he talked too. You know, if you, if you have a conversation <laughs> with him, these, these, these words just kind of jump out at you, and mm-hmm. and I, I love I love that about his his um his compositions too, and, and his improvising, it's all consistent. Really exciting record all the way through this this record, 1974. Here's the piece Earth Song, Crystals, 1974, Sam Rivers.
all the time I knew Sam, he never wrote anything that was not a four four. But as you, when you, you know, as you, when you listen to it, you, there's no four four there. <laughs> I mean, even though the time he was four four, nothing was ever in four four. Yeah, so that 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 that's where that's where many musicians really, you know, had a real really difficult time, you know, with with Sam's music. You know, a lot of musicians, you know, came in and and they didn't make it too long. <laughs> I mean, they, they they made it one or two rehearsals. It was just too much, especially drummers. He went through so many drummers during that period. Sam doesn't write um, on the bar line. The bar lines are there because you know they're necessary and convenient. But he he never writes in 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 time signatures like seven four nine four eleven four. Uh, he doesn't use those time signatures. But all his music has all that. It's in nines and elevens. You know, it's in in all these odd meters. But he does it in four four time. Uh, very few drummers were able to skip that and and get that entire scope identified as a nine instead of a one two three. But you know, it was a nine figure and it was eleven figure. And the person of of course, that ended up on the session with Warren Smith, because he was able to come down and and Warren's such a, a a spectacular musician and composer, he was able to analyze it right away and see that it was not in four four, even though the, the time signature was four four. You know, phrases were nines and eleven. The 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 low brass could be playing in a nine, and and the trumpets could be playing in fifteen four. <laughs> I mean, so everybody was pretty much in a different time and shit, but Sam was able to do that and keep it in 4-4 for the convenience of the musicians because if he had trombones reading in 5-4 and the, and the trumpets reading in 11-9 or, you know, whatever, it would have been it would have been just, you know, it would have been just too complex. And it was complex enough in 4-4, but the main thing with Sam's music is to ignore the bar lines and just play the phrases. And people that were able to do that, you know, were successful with their music. And people that were not, people that were locked into those ball lines, and every time a ball line came in, they were feeling one, and they had great difficulty with that music.
with Dave Holland and Barry Oshel and uh, and Sam. That was that was that was the trio prior to him beginning to use the tuba. The inspiration for that came from what I did on on Crystals when I kind of played this bass pattern against what Greg Maker was playing against on string bass. And so me and Greg are doing you know interchanging you know bass patterns on that particular thing. Um, but I had a written part during that tune, but I didn't play any of the written part. Once I got into playing the groove, I just kind of stayed with the groove. It was like an F, it was an F minor. They play F minor, you know, groove, and and I just continued the groove all the way through. I didn't even play my part on on that particular song. Well, Sam heard that, and um, and he and he kind of said, okay, you know, that that's kind of working, you know, that that tuba doing that bass, you know, that bass pattern. Thank you. 
that was fairly composed music, but it did not sound like it. You know, I, I mean, he wrote in such a way that encompassed um, all the devices that we use in improvisation. You know, just nobody was writing that down, and, and, and he was able to do that. He just had a multifaceted mind to, to be able to, uh, you know, get all those voices and things the way he wanted. You know, it was really a beautiful experience. That's Warren Smith there speaking on the record. Crystals, 1974, uh, Sam Rivers, and that was, uh, we just heard the track Tranquility before that bursts and the top to set off Earth Song. Joe Daly, uh, tuba player on that uh, recording, also speaking in there. And um, we have Russ Gershon and Alan Chase here. We're doing a special on Sam Rivers. We're in the segment about his uh, orchestra uh, compositional work, and I think uh, Alan, you had a story here. You mentioned uh, got some notes from Ed Michelle, the producer here, right? Yeah, the producer of this um, record sent me an email last night. He's a friend of a friend who I've corresponded with before, and um, he said a couple of things. One thing he said, I, I, he was produ- the main producer. He and Steve Backer at at Impulse in the seventies, early seventies, and he said I recorded a lot of swell players, all of them musicians of the highest order. Somehow I always thought that Sam knew more than everybody else. <laughs> uh, it's a strong statement, you know. Um, he said, I, um, I was blown away by his big band writing, and I couldn't wait to produce some of it. ABC was giving me a hard time about budgets, and I had to do the whole thing in a single-day double session. I wow. guess it would be about six hours. Um, whole album, one day, yeah, big band music. He said the band, although they'd rehearsed enough to, enough at Studio Rivby, was having a hard time with the charts, and I didn't think we'd get it done, but Sam insisted we run whole tunes and then use extra time to edit inserts for minor screw-ups, which worked just fine. He was a commanding band leader, to say the least. Um, <laughs> and I can, I can imagine that. It's an efficient way to do it. You know, you, run, you don't stop every time somebody makes a mistake. You get whole takes, and then if something got messed up, they right. produce small edit fixes. And one advantage of having your own vocabulary like he does is if uh, there are mistakes left, then nobody's going to know except for you. (laughs) I think it's an amazing album, Crystals. It's Ah, beautiful. It's very audacious for a big label to put it out. Uh, There was an era where people had a lot of freedom. Even if he had to argue for the budgets, the fact that it came out at all is quite... uh, experimental and yeah avant-garde big band you know just an incredible incredible density there strong peak precursor to the rivby orchestra which we talked about i i like this recording i like that piece in particular because you hear sam's uh there's not a lot of soloing on that you know you hear sam's uh um, uh there's basically an f minor groove with with voicings uh sam's voicings on top of it kind of coming in and out and uh um just a yeah hugely ambitious record that's amazing that it was a day yeah, I mean, it really is. It's the writing is so ensemble, hard. Very difficult, very unfamiliar kind of music, yeah. Let's jump ahead from Crystals to Sam's next important uh, large ensemble recording. This this is a this is one of my favorite of uh, favorites of Sam and, and not not one that's very well known. A uh, band he called the Winds of Manhattan. Uh, 11 Reed Players No Rhythm Section. The album is startlingly original in being completely through composed, no solos. Now, there's a group improvisation, there are sections of group improvisation, but only in very sort of cordoned off sections. So this is this is one of his overlooked recordings. I think it's completely brilliant. The record was recorded in the fall of 82 uh, in New York City. 
you have a young Steve Coleman here. You've got Bobby Watson playing alto here. Fully realized, very dense, uh, challenging, compelling music uh, for 11 reads, no rhythm section. So what we hear is really Sam's mastery of composition here. You've got tone clusters, contrapuntal melodies, uh, very close harmonies, intricate. It's very uh, beautifully designed. Um, there's a lot of mathematics going on, um, which you'll hear um, in some of the interviews. Uh, let's play the piece Matrix. Uh, this is the rec the name of the record is Colors, 1982, and I, I want to just talk a little bit about it to um, to prepare you for it because it it's 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 quite startling. <laughs> um, in this piece, there there are five melodic lines in different time signatures, and they they uh, each of these lines repeat. So the first thing you'll hear is all five lines played simultaneously for some period of time. Then each of the lines, each of the five lines is stated uh, very profoundly in solely sections by two saxophones in octaves. Um, so after those five statements are, are completed, then all the lines begin overlapping and you get this incredible texture. And, and then in the middle section, the lines come together again for some unison writing. Uh, some dissonant whole tones, and followed by some some very composed fragments. So I, I love this record because it, it really showcases Sam's writing. Um, there's no improvisation here except for Sam at the end improvising on solo, ten solo tenor. Um, and there's a, there's a little bit of group improvisation, but like I said before, it's sort of cordoned off. Um, I, I spoke with Steve Coleman, who played on this this recording, and uh, spoke with him in particular about the uh, his his experience recording on this record, Colors. For me, Sam's compositions were more like nature. And by that, I mean this. Most people write music, especially the novices, just like what you see when you see actors in television. You know, people waiting to talk and all this kind of stuff. Everything's blocked off really nicely and everything. But that's not the way things are. That's not the way things are in nature. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're living somewhere where there's a lot of animals and stuff like that, I mean, monkeys and all this kind of stuff, you still you hear all these sounds at night, they're all overlapping, they're all, it's, it's beautiful, you know? And Sam's music has that quality. It has like, you know, he builds that into the music. Two different conversations are going on at the same time, and then they come back together, and then they, they separate off and everything. And Sam captures that quality in his music.
And so I would go to him and I was like, Sam, I'm listening to this music and, um, you know, none of this stuff is in 4-4. And he was like, yeah, I know. You know, I was like, but you got it written out all in four. He was like, yeah, because if I don't, nobody be able to play it. You know, so he said that he was, dealing, you know, he wrote everything out in four because he wanted the musicians to be able to play it. But he was well aware that it wasn't in four. You know, but he said if he wrote it out like just just like he envisioned in his mind, you know, nobody would be able to play it, and people would start bitching, and, oh, man, it's really difficult, and this and that. So he was kind of tricking the musicians into playing what he had in his mind, you know, by presenting the notation a certain way and everything, you know. Because he'd have a phrase like, um, you know, that's not four. You know, I mean, where that's looping, where that's coming around, and and he'll have against it some other phrase. You know, I mean, and he'll have the two things against each other, and they'll have something else that might be four or five or whatever, you know. But just in terms of the um, what I call the sentence, I call these musical sentences. You know, the sentences will be at different lengths and things like that. But he'll know how they relate, and he'll plan them so that they'll conjunct, they'll come together. At a certain point, you know, like this part will go five times, this part will go seven times. It's like math, basically, you know, and, and, and then they'll have it all come together and drop out and then separate again. It's incredible. I mean, and, and it, he'll have improvisations drop in. It's like the uncertainty principle because an improvisation is like that. You don't know what somebody's going to play, you know. So if I have if I have a line, let's say I have four instruments and I have a, um, one instrument doing one line that's of a certain length, another instrument doing another line that's of a different length. So, so when it's looping around, even though they're moving the same tempos, when they're looping around, different parts of, of line A are against line B in different points. You know, I, this is one thing I learned from Sam. I grabbed that from him right away because it was, like, incredible, you know. Then another instrument might be having something at a different length, and then a fourth instrument might be improvising, creating its own phrases of his own length and everything. And when you get something like that together, you get this texture that's just incredible.
uh, many times when people listen to music, the drums and the bass dominate. And so you go with the, the rhythm of the drums or, or, or the rhythm of the bass or whatever. And you, you don't, it's, you're not, you don't so clearly hear what's happening on top as musicians say, you know, but with colors, that's all that's there. Because we tend to think of the wind instruments as the color. The rhythm section is more of the body or the drive or the pulse or whatever. But when you take the rhythm section away, you just left with what? The colors. You're listening to WZBC 90.3 FM. It's Steve Coleman there talking about the record Colors, 1982, Winds of Manhattan. Incredible, right? I mean, the textures going on there, the writing is just so dense. It is. It's unbelievable music. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing. And you said you would you had actually had, uh, had seen the scores for a couple of these. Yeah, I got to uh, play with a bunch of students and alumni at New England Conservatory, a uh, two-hour open sort of rehearsal with Sam uh, Back when he was visiting in '96, he brought several of these pieces, and we read them. Wow, and that must have been quite a challenge to read those. (laughs) It was. It was. Well, we didn't do that one. (laughs) They weren't. They weren't that hard to do. They were hard. We did get lost at times and had to restart. (laughs) Well, let's move. Were were there parts, or were you reading off the scores? No, there were parts. Oh, there were parts. He he did give me a score, but there were individual parts. Was it the same thing? Eleven reads. Glad to hear that. Yes, his his uh, notation is very accurate and conventional looking it's the sound that isn't right <laughs> as uh, steve and different people were saying about the four four it does make the rhythms look familiar even though they're looping <laughs> in right. weird ways yeah let's let's uh get into his uh his his time with the riv b orchestra um in the late 80s on a tour with dizzy sam played a concert in orlando and um, at that time, there were a lot of musicians that uh, basically asked him to move down there and, and, and uh, form a reading band. And uh, here, uh, he quickly formed the Rivby Orchestra. He and his wife, B moved in, down in 1991. And uh, I love this, uh, this group. This is the group that this is the first band I saw of Sam's in, in mm-hmm. uh, 1995 when I, I brought him into uh, to, to Gainesville to play the festival. And I was just completely blown away. In fact, I think this piece is the first one I heard. It's called Whirlwind off the 1999 record Inspiration, uh, Sam Rivers and the Rivby Orchestra.
Doug Matthews. I played basses, uh, electric bass, and double bass. And and while I was working with Sam, I actually started playing bass clarinet also. I guess one of the reasons why he ended up in Orlando, besides the weather, and I think one of his maybe one of his daughters had moved down here already, was that he had come through town uh, with Dizzy and played over at the Beecham Theater. And uh, he always thought, hey, the weather's nice, you know, and. And he knew there were a lot of musicians that could read because of because of the theme parks, because of Disney. And I think he had in his head that he just really wanted to get a, a reading band that could come in every week and do his thing. So we, once the band started up, it was pretty much every Wednesday uh, for years they would rehearse. You know, I mean, he just had, it seemed like, just hundreds of, of big band charts. He would bring something in and go, well, I haven't heard this in 40 years. Or he would bring something in and go, I never heard this. You know, maybe he had been just working on it, you know, last week or last year, or maybe he had worked on it 30 years ago and never had a chance to play it. He didn't. He didn't always like rehearsing a whole a whole lot. Uh, he liked playing it down. He would. There were kind of two two things that would happen if something if something fell apart. He would he would either blame himself. Oh, it wasn't ready. You know, I, I must have done something wrong. He would always, instead of just like Sam, you know, maybe we can maybe we can like figure this out real quick. You know, so he would just like, uh, we'll bring it back, and you might never see the piece again. <laughs> it might it'd be Sam. That was great. What happened to that? Oh, I'm, it wasn't ready. I'm working on it, or you know, or then he would have his moments. Not so much with the band here. Sometimes when we'd be when we'd be out on the road, he'd get a little little upset that you know he knew something should be able to be played or should work and it didn't i think he just wanted to move on you know oh, we'll see if this one works you know i'm bringing another tune and some of them were i mean crazy hard some of them were you know once he got used to to reading his his book wasn't like reading anything else you could be the best reader and and have sam's music put in front of you and go well, well what do i do with that you know he had certain things the way he wanted things phrased and that was just sort of understood. Letter, uh, letter K, what it says, piano solo. Uh, letter K is, uh, we'll all play, I mean, we'll play, uh, we'll improvise together, 16 bars, and come right in on three. All right, and then letter A, we'll improvise for 16 bars, and come right in on L. Everybody, you know, like that. And so, and guitar, and bass is that, you know. And so, letter four, ba bam ba bam ba 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 and then that again. What was that number four? Where's where's that? Uh, four of okay. G. Of L. L. Yeah, L. Yeah, four of L. L four. Yeah, we're moving along. <laughs> 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 let's see, that's it, let's see. And then letter O, trombones, bottom bat, low it bottom bat, up. And then um, saxophone, the baritone, bang, dong, ain, dong, ain, on, bang, on, ain, bang, and then trumpets, one, two, three, eh, that's what gets you two, three, yeah. eh, take it up, eh, boop, boop it up, eh, boop, boop it up. Where are you now? Uh, o, O, B. O, O, B. That's the first trombone solo. That's, that's your, your solo there, right? That's the background on the trumpet. The trumpet would be saying, and the outro tank. One, two. One, two. Ah, do it up. Ah, boo it up. Ah, boo it up. Two times, I guess. And then, and then, and then the orchestra comes in and let it be. It was a unique, really unique thing. Um, the other thing is, it with Sam's book is he had sort of different 
series of tunes where he would where he would sort of be working on a you know maybe a certain rhythmic concept or a certain concept of phrasing with oh you know this is so many bars and then the backgrounds come in and certain harmonic things that he would be kind of experimenting with and like so maybe four twenties were all like certain stylistically similar almost like suites sometimes he he would write them as suites but then he'd realize well if you played those all in a row then you know it'd be a little too much of the same or something so we would he would break them down into into smaller compositions there was some music that we called the happy book and that was like the kind of book that we would usually play at some of the some of the clubs like the social and it was almost like a dance book you know like a party like a rock funk sort of happy you know playing out at a party kind of thing but but the backgrounds and everything else was still you know totally sam it was like 20th century music with a with a rhythm section you know playing grooves so so there was that music and then there was the you know there was some really deep stuff that was just almost impossible if you missed something in a phrase or miscounted something it might be a long time before you could even figure out where you were supposed to be again, if you did figure it out.
seeing his trio was like seeing an orchestra too. I mean, it was actually kind of, I was used to leave those shows a little bit depressed because Sam would sit down and play such great piano. And uh, his drummer, wasn't a man's name? Anthony, Cole, yeah. He would sit down and play some amazing piano. And I was thinking, wow, I think, you know, I'm studying piano. And these guys are like, you know, they play amazing at their primary instruments, but like piano seems like so natural. And so it was, you know, going to see Sam's show was always like a, a challenge because he heard this great music. It flowed. He was free on stage, you know, like to walk around to make sounds into the microphone you know, with his mouth. So it was, you know, for me, it just became an inspiration about like how far you could take, you know, one idea or even the performance itself. It was everything from completely free to like sort of exactly like themes that, that he would play that you would hear, like you would hear a line and you'd know, okay, well that's sort of in, you know, a D minor kind of thing or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of tonal center it had. So that part of it definitely had sort of uh, more, more audible themes, you know, more, you know, just stuff that you sort of knew that weren't necessarily written down. But then there were a lot of, you know, a lot of his actual compositions that we would play too. You know, we would do like, you know, Beatrice and uh, Solace and Nightfall and Iris and some of those kind of tunes that were actually, uh, you know, composed. But when we saw him, he would give them to us like a, you know, it was like a lead sheet, almost like a fake book lead sheet. You know, here's the melody, here's the changes, and then we would get together and, and he would sort of say what he had in mind on the changes because he would, you know, write down, he'd have the changes in the book, you know, on the sheets, but then he would he would be like, well, here it's really sort of this chord, you know, and he would sit down at the piano and, and oh, that's, you know, it's really more of that chord. You know, so I would have in some of my, uh, the original stuff that he had given me, you know, I've got all these other bass notes written in and different places that were, well, this is another optional note and, you know, so yeah, it was it was it was everything from you know compositions to just little head riffs to to completely free. Thank <laughs> you. 
the piece Concept from album of the same name, 1997. Doug Matthews bass, Anthony Cole drums, Sam Rivers on soprano, and that was Doug Matthews uh, and Jason Moran speaking um, about the trio. And before that, the piece uh, Whirlwind from the Rivby Orchestra, uh, 1999, Inspiration. Um, I want to thank Alan Chase and Russ Gershon for being here. Thank you so much, both of you. Thanks thank you. Yeah. Oh man, and, inspirational. Uh, yeah, what a what a career. I mean, we've covered so many bases here. Um, uh, you know, his compositional work, his orchestra work, the straight ahead work. It, it's just amazing to see how prolific this this man was. Yeah, the thing that I was just thinking, what two words kind of wrap it up for me? You know, he had all the knowledge that you could want to have as a musician, and all the imagination and freedom. He wasn't in, he wasn't limited by his knowledge. He didn't have mm-hmm. to be correct all the time. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I mean, there's a real sense of adventure. Yeah, you adventure. Know. That's yeah. a yeah. good word. For He's it. the rare uh, guy who t- died um, too young at 88. Yeah, it yeah, feels it's that really, way. It really does. Yeah, yeah, and he was riding all the way up, all the way up until he until he until he passed. You know, yeah. it's just incredible. So let's uh, let's get some closing comments and uh, uh, closing thoughts from the people I interviewed. And thanks again. Uh, my name is Brian Carpenter. This has been a program on WZBC 90.3 FM. Boston College. Well, he was a, a very optimistic kind of guy, a, a, a very jovial person, you know, um, very um, demonstrative and all of this, and, and you know, and kind of almost like an exaggeration, of, um, you know, kind of person, everything. He didn't care so much what people thought, you know, he might be somewhere, he might just be loud or something like that in a restaurant where most people would be, hey, hey shh, come on, man, people are looking at us, you know, that kind of thing, you know. And his music was like that, you know. I mean, it, it was it was almost like a childlike kind of thing. A lot of these guys, like Monk and Sam and them, they were like that all through their life. In other words, they they didn't have to wait till they got old or, or, or when they were really young, or whatever. They, they they stayed like that. They kept that that, you know, because that's part of what being creative is. And I, I don't just think it's people like that. I think people like Einstein were like that. You know, that's why they get these nutty professor type tags and stuff like that because they don't care. They're not so much concerned with how things should be. For them, that's fluff. And Sam was like that. Sam was just, you know, he was just real. You know, he wasn't into all these airs and all that kind of stuff. And his music had that very raw, real quality to it. It wasn't, he wasn't concerned with what it should be. I mean, a lot of people, I'm not going to mention names, but you know what they are. A lot of people today are always talking about what jazz should be and how jazz should be this and jazz wants to be this. and just, It doesn't want to be anything. It doesn't have a personality on its own. Its personality is us. What's most interesting to me is the unique part of what he's doing, which is the part that I was trying to explain before. It's connected to his personality. He has a certain way of being, a certain way of emoting, whatever you want to call it, you know, and all of that is there in his music, you know, and the more I got to know him, the more I got to realize that the music was just a reflection of who he was. You know, I mean, the way he is at the dinner table or the way he is when we're in a restaurant or the way he is when we're just walking down the street, that's all in the music. He was so, um, so passionate about, you know, different subjects and, you know, politics and different things that happen in the world and how, you know, I mean, you live that long and you see things change and he would be very passionate. So he could, you know, he could talk, on any number of subjects, and it was always the, uh, it's always like, oh, wonder what's, wonder what it's going to be tonight. <laughs> and Sam's just, you know, he's just in his mode, just, you know, uh, you know, I got something to say, and, you know, I'm old enough. What are they going to say? <laughs> he was quite a, quite an inspiration. He had so much energy and, you know, just love for life and for playing, and, 
and the music. It was just he was still he was still writing all the way up till the end. I mean, when I was in high school, I was listening to I guess the trio record where he uh, was Norman Connors, uh, the Impulse record. That was like my, one of my favorite things to listen to. It was more because I felt like his voice on soprano, on tenor, on piano, on flute, and then just when he sings his, you know, how he does this thing. Like, that. that was all, it was all so genuine, you know? Um, I felt like it wasn't a, it wasn't a display of technique. It was more of a display of honesty. And so that is what kind of lends him to a kind of a special place within the canon of improvised music, um, because he was honest the entire way through, even when he's playing with Dizzy Gillespie, you know? So he's kind of like a, a, he's a, he's a musician. I think that also was able to blend that or kind of blur that line between, you know, that some people really try to keep this wall up between like say free players and players who play changes or play swing or whatever you want to try to define it as. And Sam was a person who was like all of that and, and much more. And in that way, you get a you get a musician that becomes an inspiration because he didn't wasn't into maybe defining over and over and over the one idea he had that was great, you know. He was willing and able to set it within different contexts. And then, you know, and also him as an entrepreneur. I mean, these I take all of these things into account with how he with how he would sound. So his double big band he might have in Florida or his dance band or his loft up here in New York City. So this is a person who's thinking not only about what his music is, but what the community is and the community that surrounds the music. And those were very, very few musicians who were able to think that broadly. So this kind of manifests itself in how he plays too. The thing about Sam that musicians know, but not non-musicians know, because you know you see this kind of wild character on stage, is that Sam was like the highest level professional musician. And that's why I think every musician has the most respect for Sam because he was a guy who had the most, like his skill level of traditional music, being a side man, being uh, someone who could read music perfectly, someone who could interpret forms perfectly. You know, we never, you know, he was one of those guys, obviously, but, you know, he loved to play free music. He loved to free improvise, but it, but he had like the most complete understanding you can imagine of form and harmony and reading and because all you know it's just like it was it, it, it was so fun because we would just kind of go through the beginnings and ends and the transitions of the songs and then we just record it and it would just be that would be it and it was done you know he, he definitely would make a mistake reading you know he read, and of course once it came time to improvise forget it, it was incredible so not only was he conducting the orchestra doing these complex, you know, over the bar line, you know, applied theoretical, you know, compositions, but he was playing along and the main and most interesting soloist on on all of the tracks, which which is is, is mind-boggling, you know, um, yeah, how great this, uh, <laughs> what a great man and musician and, and intellect this man was. Musicians, we sometimes really need the support of our families in order to really do what we do, and Sam had that. I remember B's excitement after the gig and the energy that she had and the love for it, and she was very much like my wife was, uh, who who also was devoted to the music and the musicians, and they, they had a great friendship um, during that time. So I just want to tip my hat to the whole family. He was like the queen mother of everybody, you know. If you needed any advice or any admonitions or correction in your behavior, she would be right on the case, you know. <laughs> she kept us all in line. It was really great. 
she was more than a huge part in Sam's career. She was a huge part of Sam, period. And she really was. I mean, she, you know, she, <laughs> uh, she used to uh, pass judgment on uh, uh, if you were a good player or a bad player for her <laughs> to, to be uh, involved in playing Sam and Sam's music. And she was pretty much, you know, her ears were pretty much on. She was pretty much right. They were great together. They were really great together. Thank you. 